Welcome to episode 30 of the Philosopher Science podcast, the podcast about free, libre, and open source software for science. Today, David and I are interviewing Todd Gambling and talk about SPEC, a flexible package manager for supercomputers. Hi, Todd. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. How would you introduce yourself to our listeners? Um, I'm a computer scientist at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. I've been in the research division here for maybe 10 years. Um, I started as a student and then I was a postdoc and I've been staffed there for a while, but I recently moved into uh, the advanced technology office in Livermore Computing, which is our HPC center. What is your current research at Lawrence Livermore National Lab about? So historically, I'm a performance tools person. I work on uh, tools to measure uh, the performance of HPC applications and to speed them up to visualize what they're doing. Um, but I, I guess since 2013, when I started SPAC, I've also worked on it as, as kind of a research project um, into you know, what you can do with a package manager. Okay, so is developing and maintaining SPAC one of your official job duties or is it a side project? I guess I would say uh, I do a lot of development on SPAC. Um, it is one of my official duties because I run the project. Um, so I, I think most of my time these days is spent leading the team um, in addition to some of the core development on the tool. Okay. So I would assume that SPAC is used at your lab to maintain your supercomputers? Yeah, it's used to deploy the user-facing software on top of our uh, other um, software distribution, which we call TOS. It's a derivative of Red Hat. Currently seven. We're moving to eight later this year. Do you have any other research project currently at the Lawrence Livermore National Lab? Um, so I, I had a number of projects uh, around performance analysis, and, and I guess I'm still working on some of those um, they're around auto-tuning and how to do performance measurement. Um, we're working on a tool that can interface with um, Raja, which is a parallel uh, abstraction layer for HPC, and pick the, the types of back-end parallel models that we use in kernels in our codes. I'm also working on a project called Hatchet. That is essentially a tool for pruning the big trees of performance data that you get out of lots of uh, call stack profilers. Um, and then, you know, SPAC is also a research project to some extent in the sense that, you know, we're, we're exploring new things that we can do in the core of a package manager. Okay. Where does fit profiling in the context of HPC? I mean, usually I understand that some code will be run quite a lot, like open form, like some pathway need to be improved, but uh, a lot of scientists are writing their own code and they're not necessarily computer scientists with like with background in optimization do you support teams do you provide tools for scientists or where where does it fit um so livermore and and the doe labs in general are pretty big and so there there are little research projects where you know, someone is developing sort of a one-off code for something but there's also big production code teams and so livermore computation um, is like a thousand people. The whole lab is seven thousand people, and and we do support a lot of different application teams in different uh, domain science areas. So there's molecular dynamics, there's you know, multi physics simulations, there's climate codes, there's lately a lot of work around COVID, um, and and essentially you know we we take those codes, we run them, we get a profile, we look at you know, what are the bottlenecks, how fast are they doing communication on the machine, um, how what's the routine that's taking up the most time. There's lots of reasons that a code can go slow. So, yeah, I'd say profiling is a pretty big part of, um, of our job. Um, I guess as a researcher, I, I worked in pretty close collaboration with the development environment group in Livermore Computing. And they're tasked with helping the teams with these types of performance issues. So they'll go in and um, run the profiler on the code, analyze why it's slow. And, and then there are other teams that will go and propose fixes for how to make the code faster. And you also lead the software packaging technologies area in the U.S. Exascale computing project? Yep. So the that grew out of the fact that SPAC is used very widely within the ECP, the Exascale computing project. Essentially, the, the software packaging technologies area, it, it's core SPAC development, it's support for ECP teams that want to use SPAC to package their code, um, and it's also it also has a containers component in it. And so it, it pretty much covers anything that you could use to deploy software on um, the, the DOE and the future exascale machines. What would be your one-minute elevator pitch for SPAC? So that's hard because it does a lot of things, um, but I, I would say it's, it's a flexible package manager like the title says. 
if you want to build the software um, the you know your way, if you want to build something with multiple compilers, you can use spec to do that. And I think that the main way that it differs from other package managers is that the packages are templated. You can build the same software 60 different ways with different compiler flags, different compilers, different MPI implementations, and so on. Um, and spec does not have a problem with that. It'll let you do all those things. Okay. Under Linux, there's many package manager or tools to manage package. Is SPAC closer to, man- to package managers such as apt, DNF, or zipper, where you kind of define a series of actions to take, or more declar- declarative tools such as ne- NIX, Next, uh, Ansible, Chef, or Puppet, where you m- more or less declare a target state? Uh, where does SPAC fit within the spectrum? I'd say it's more like, at least these days, more like Nick Sansible, Chef, and, and Puppet in the sense that we have added a lot of devops features to SPAC to allow you to specify the environment that you want, and then SPAC will go and build it. But SPAC's roots are really, they're probably closer to APT in, in, the, in terms of the command line interface. I guess it's kind of halfway in between APT and Nix. You can think of it as, as Nix with dependency resolution. So... Um, where, whereas with Nix, you have to write essentially a package file for every single configuration or close to it for all of your packages, right? And you have to modify those, you know, the what do they call them? Derivations um, for each of your configurations. With SPAC, the packages are templated. And so if you want to build a one-off version of something with different flags or with a different com- um, version or, you know, the same stack with maybe a different compiler, um, you can do that a lot more easily in SPAC from the command line. Okay. Spec, I suppose it does install uh, source code. It, it compiles from source code. It doesn't install binary package. It does both. Um, so Spec is to some extent inspired by Nix in that every configuration gets a hash. And so th- that's what allows us to do this combinatorial versioning. And so we can build an arbitrary configuration from source, um, but we can also associate a binary cache with a particular hash. Um, and, and you can install you know, a cached configuration from binaries. Do you know on how many top 500 supercomputers spec is used? Uh, I don't know about the whole top 500, um, but it is used on in one way or another on seven of the top 10. So, uh, and we have stats from the documentation site. I, I think there's something like 2,500 um, monthly active users on the documentation site. So it's pretty widely used. Okay. Do you know if it's mostly used in the US or is it more like a worldwide usage or... Um, it's used in the U.S. It's used in Japan. I, I've seen you know lots of usage in Europe. Um, some of the bigger European machines like LRZ's uh, SuperMuck2 or SuperMuck NG um, are using SPAC. Uh, we got a lot. Of, we've got a lot of users in Germany. CEA uses SPAC. AWE in the UK, um, and then I've seen you know users in in China, Australia, India, lots of places. Okay. Do you know how many software packages are supported in the official SPAC repo? Um, there's 4,000 packages in the SPAC repo right now. Can you name some well-known packages for set support? Sure. So we have a lot of the major math libraries. Um, so things like Hypertralinos, Petsy. Um, there are packages like DL2 in there. There's a pretty large Python ecosystem, pretty large R ecosystem. So I think there's about 800 Python and R packages each. Um, Perl, there's recently a TensorFlow package in SPAC, um, although you know, it, I don't think we have it working everywhere. Uh, we're trying to get that in there so that people can build it in arbitrary ways on different machines. Um, the GCC, LLVM, I mean, there, there are an awful lot of packages in there. Okay. We briefly talked about it, that you added DevOps components to SPAC because managing large clusters and installing scientific software on multiple nodes can be quite tedious. In large clustered computer... Uh, with multiple nodes, what kind of automation is provided by SPAC? Yeah, so originally SPAC was was a command line interface that looked an awful lot like APT or something like that. You could say SPAC install some package, you could say SPAC install some package at version, but you had to run all these commands to install your software. Um, we added this functionality for environments, uh, I guess two years ago now, where you can specify a YAML file that, that just says, what do you want to build? And you basically say, I want this package at this version, this package at this version. Um, and we've added a whole lot of features on top of that to support automation. So the environment itself, um, essentially, we've added the ability to make a matrix of specs. So you can say, build this list of packages with these compilers and these MPIs, and it'll do the whole Cartesian product of that. 
and um, install that whole thing. You can take that, you can turn it into a GitLab pipeline. And so you can version essentially the environment in uh, one repo. And GitLab will go and farm that out into builds across a number of runners um, that then just they basically update the builds and the binary packages uh, whenever you push to the repo. So there's that automation. Um, and we recently added the ability to do, um, I guess, parallel builds, but also concurrent builds. So essentially, you can say S runs back install some package and um, it, with, with Slurm or MPI run with another uh, tool. And essentially, these back instances will coordinate with each other over the parallel file system. So you can build a very large stack in parallel um, across you know, several nodes if you want to, or lots of nodes, but most builds don't get that kind of parallelism. So a few nodes is probably good enough. Okay, and then you can easily deploy it to the whole cluster. Yep. Okay. Is it also possible to use module files within spec? So if I have some special compiler installed, so can I just use a module load command within spec and then compile everything with this compiler, or how would one do this? Um, you can. So spec will generate modules. Um, there's lots of configuration for doing either LMOD or Tickle modules, the two main systems that HPC centers use. Um, so you can do that. You can also just say spack load package and you don't even need modules to use it. So you can use the same workflow on your laptop where you might not have modules or on your HPC machine. Um, and then we have environments. Yeah. Okay. But for example, if I use a Cray machine and I want to use this Cray pre-installed MPI compiler or same on Summit, if I want to use the IBM Spectrum compiler, so... Is there a module available for spec or do I have to write my own module or how can I get these pre-installed compilers integrated to spec? So for compilers, we just, we, we detect the compilers on the machine. So if you run spec for the first time and you say spec compiler list, you'll see any compilers that happen to be in your path. And if you just module load the compiler and say spec compiler find again, it'll, it'll find it and, and put it in your configuration file. Um, so yeah, you can use compilers that are installed on the system. Um, you can also use pre-installed packages. And so you can say, here's an external package. Uh, here's the module for it on a Cray. And you can link against the built-in Cray libsci or the you know built-in Cray MPI for that scenario. Okay. Let us move more to the spec file, which is a pure Python file, which has to be written for every package. So is there any special syntax or library one has to learn before packaging custom applications with spec? Uh, so spec, it, it's its own DSL. Um, every, like you said, every package is, is a Python class. And there are a few directives that you need to know uh, to write a package. If you've ever written a homebrew package or a Linux brew package, um, it looks an awful lot like that. It's just written in Python and not Ruby. So you say depends on other package name. Um, you can say, you know, here's a patch that I want to execute when the package is a particular version. Um, things like that. You have to specify the versions inside of there. So essentially the directives are just functions that you call inside the package definition. And then um, the rest of it is mostly pure Python. We have some special things uh, to make the, the packages easier to write. So you can say, for example, like, I don't know, CC equals which CC, and then you'll get uh, a function object back uh, that you can call just like you would the CC command on the command line. So there are things like that, um, but it's designed to be easy. Okay. So are the compiler flags and everything also included in the spec file or is it in the YAML file you mentioned previously? Um, you can put them in your configuration files. Um, you can inject them from the command line. You can, I mean, one thing about spec that, that's kind of important to remember is that you can inject these options for packages in lots of different places. Um, to some extent, we leave the compiler flags up to the build system, but we do... Um, Spec does take control of one set of compiler flags, which is the ones that specify the target. So Spec knows about your microarchitecture. And because we support binaries, we want every build to be targeted at a particular you know, ABI and, and binary interface and, and so or, or instruction set in this case. So essentially, if you're on a Skylake machine, Spec will say, oh, you're on a Skylake machine. So when it does the build, we use compiler wrappers within the build and they actually inject the flags that say build for Skylake and, and use the available instructions there. Um, but I guess the important thing there is they also say don't use other instructions. So if you want to distribute that binary afterwards, um, you know what it was built for. And we know that, you know, for example, Skylake binaries could be used on Cascade Lake, but not on, um, you know, a Haswell machine because they just don't have the same instructions. So there's, there are lots of ways that compiler flags get into the builds. Okay. 
Can one use additional Python libraries in the spec files, or is it just pure Python? So could I add matplotlib and do some nice pictures about the versions I compiled or something like this? You could do that. We, we probably would not accept that into the main line just because we don't, by default, depend on matplotlib, and we wouldn't want to impose that as a dependency on all the users of spec. But yeah, it's, it's pure Python. You can import um, you know, a spec package from anywhere. You can even write um, a script using spec and basically import the built-in packages and run them elsewhere. So you, know, you, can, and you can access the spec core. Um, we ship spec with a spec Python command, and so you can just do hash bang spec Python um, at the beginning of your script and, and automate things that maybe spec doesn't do by default. Okay. And what is the procedure to submit a package? You just submit a pull request. Um, it, we have a lot of tooling around creating new packages. So if you know the URL uh, where your package can be downloaded, you can just say spec create URL and we will produce you know, a boilerplate package for you that you then fill in the blanks on. Um, push that to GitHub, submit a pull request back to the main line, and uh, you'll get reviews on it. Um, the, the GitHub community is pretty active. And, and so, you know, I, I think if you submit something, you will get feedback pretty quickly. And, you know, it, it may take us a week or so to merge some packages, uh, but you know, I think the iteration usually is good for the contributors. Okay. And what is the review process for new packages? It's, it's, it's a bit freeform right now. I, I mean, we have people who are watching GitHub all the time. And they will comment, and you know, if an official maintainer approves the package, then then they have the power to merge it. So, um, essentially, just make the maintainers happy. Um, the the folks that we have on on GitHub know pretty well who's you know an expert in one package or another, and so they will tag other reviewers as needed uh, on the packages. We are trying to improve that. Um, so, for example, we'd like to have official maintainers listed on packages, which you can do right now, but we don't have any automation attached to that. So I'd like someone to be able to say, hey, I want to be the maintainer for Hyper. And then for them to be added as a reviewer to every PR that has to do with Hyper. Um, so we're working on that. Okay, when you're mentioning official maintainers, you're not talk talking about the developers of uh, OpenFoam, uh, MPI, or other libraries themselves, but more like maintainers of the package for spec. Yeah, that's that's right. So And those could be the same people, but they might not be. Yeah, okay. Uh, have you ever had to reject a package? Yeah, we have rejected some packages. Um, you know, if, if we just really don't like the way that it's implemented or if we think it's it's too complicated in one way or another. Or I think a, a common thing that happens is that we will reject uh, contributions where they want to do their own downloads. Um, a lot of packages will try to go and download a million things that we don't really have control over, and, and we try to be reproducible in SPAC. So we want SPAC to control all of those types of things. Okay. Which operating systems are supported by SPAC? So it's it's Linux and Mac OS right now, where Linux includes things like Cray, where you know the Compute Node OS might not be like pure Linux. Um, we would like to support Windows, um, and we are trying to find some funding for that. So hopefully soon we could be able to do that. But at the moment, yeah, it's just Linux and Mac OS. What is the plan to support Windows? Do you intend to use the WSL? Um, I, so actually, I think we could run uh, in WSL right now. Uh, because the, you know that's that's pretty close to a Linux environment, but we'd really like to be able to do native builds in MSVC and, and things like that. Um, because you know there's a lot of places that use HPC software that maybe have developers who work on Windows, and so I, I guess you know it's a good question because a lot of them may be moving to WSL, but I think there are still sites where people are doing native development on Windows for, for different products. And so we'd like to be able to support that as well. Yeah. So if I submit a package, can I restrict my package to a specific OS type or version? For example, can I just specify that my submitted package is only available on Fedora 29? Um, you could declare a conflict and say that it, it conflicts with things that are you know, not Fedora 29. Um, but generally in spec, we try to keep things open. So, you know, one of the goals of spec is to run on fairly exotic machines. So like I said, we run on seven of the top 10 machines and there are all sorts of different architectures. Um, uh, you, we run on, for example, like the new Fugaku machine in Japan, they're using spec to deploy their, their software. And that's like an ARM 64 FX machine. So if we allowed the maintainers to say, you know, my package only works on x86 under Fedora 29, um, I think it would make it much harder to do ports like that. So we tend to keep these things open. Um, and, and the goal of SPAC ultimately is to have templated packages that work for the most part anywhere. Um, so I think, you know, we would probably discourage someone who tried to say, you know, this only runs on Fedora. 
and tell them to, you know, you can contribute that to Fedora. But to make it more broad, for example, some people do not have access to macOS. So if I, for example, would provide a spec package, I could only test on Linux. So would it be possible that I just say this package was only tested for Linux and never on macOS and I can submit it? Or how do you deal with this kind of situation? We currently allow that. And what we are trying to set up is build testing for the major platforms. Um, so essentially, um, right now, one of the maintainers has, has set up a Mac OS nightly build. Um, and if we hook that up to the main line, then, you know, for every Mac OS package that you contribute, uh, we might just build it, um, on, you know, Azure or some other cloud resource as part of, you know, the, the pull request approval process. We'd like to be able to do that. And same for, for example, like the big DOE machines. Um, we would like to be able to test, you know, a, a subset of, you know, curated SPAC packages on the, the big machines that we care about in, in DOE. So we're working on that. Okay. But if you run a test and my package will not compile and I have no access to macOS, it would be really hard for me to fix this package or? Yeah, that's true. Um, I think someone would likely help you with that. Um, and, and if it's a... I think we would pick, you know, some subset of packages for which we would do this build testing, right? And so some maintainer would have some expertise in that and would be able to jump in and help. Is it possible to ship a containerized application uh, with spec instead of uh, a native or standard uh, libraries or application? So I, I wouldn't say that spec ships containers, right? But we will generate a container uh, recipe for you. So if you have a spec environment and it says, you know, I want these three programs in my environment, um, you could think of spec packages as kind of like cross-platform build recipes. And so you can actually say within a spec environment, spec containerize, and we will spit out a multi-stage Docker build um, that, that basically breaks the build into you know, a, a build image and a, a shipping you know, final artifact image. And for the final artifact image, we'll take out all the compilers and stuff that we use to build and just give you the you know, stripped binaries for, for what you built. Okay. So, so that's the way that we recommend that people make containers with spec. We're working on extending that functionality, but it's another one of these things that sort of builds on our um, environment uh, YAML format. Okay, but if a researcher wants to have uh, to deploy a container like that he built locally in his computer to have reproducible results like on his computer and on a cluster, uh, is that a supported feature or not? Yeah, so we ship a number of base images on that are on Docker Hub um, for SPAC. So you can actually say from you know SPAC slash CentOS seven if you want to do that, um, and it's basically a CentOS image that comes with SPAC in it, and then you could use SPAC to install all your dependencies or or your code, um, and you know ship the resulting image. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, that, that you you you'd have to build it with SPAC in in mind. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And can you run those containers? Like, uh, are they totally platform agnostic? Like a Linux container, it, uh, maybe it runs on Mac with a, with a VM. Uh, I don't know exactly. Well, yeah, you can run a Linux container on a Mac. You can, I mean, essentially, you can run it wherever you can run Linux containers, right? And, and Linux containers rely on a Linux kernel um, to, to be compatible. Um, what you can't do, though, is, and this is one of the things that you know, we're dealing with on that uh, packaging technologies project, um, is it, people say containers run everywhere, but they don't. The, the, they run on whatever architecture they were built for. And so, you know, if I build an x86 container and I try to run it on, you know, an ARM machine, it's not going to run. And and so um, that's one of the things that we are really trying to do uh, in SPAC with this microarchitecture detection. Um, we want to be able to label both the SPAC binaries and, you know, the containers we build with them with the specific microarchitecture they were built for. So if you get a container that was built with SPAC, it might have a tag in it that says, hey, this is for Skylake. And you would know that you need a Skylake machine to run that because it has specialized instructions in it. And what is your personal take on containerized application for scientific computing to achieve reproducible environments? I think there's always a tension between uh, performance and reproducibility and, and also portability and reproducibility. So in the DOE, we run on so many different platforms and, and none of them are exactly the same. So if I run the same application on say, you know, Sierra at Livermore and it, it's, it's, I could run it on Trinity, um, but it would not, well, I couldn't run that on Trinity because Sierra is a power nine and Trinity is like a KNL. But if I built something on my Linux cluster at Livermore, I could run that on Trinity, but it wouldn't be optimized for the machine. And so I think, you know, the, for, we support 
sort of two types of reproducibility in spec. So within the environments, there's a spec.yaml and there's a spec.lock. And the YAML file basically says the requirements of the build. So if you need, you know, HDF5, OpenMPI, and DL2 to, to run your code, um, you could have those installed with a spec.yaml. Um, and when we concretize that environment, that's what we call the dependency resolution in spec, we'll actually spit out a lock file that says, this is exactly what I built. And you can take that lock file and reproduce the same thing on the exact same architecture, but it's very closely tied to the architecture of the OS and all of those details about the system that you ran on. And so, you know, I, I think having both of those is helpful because sometimes you want it exact, but other times you just want to run the same environment on a different machine and exact reproducibility isn't really helpful there. Yeah. Okay. So it's another way to approach a problem and get similar results. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the reproducibility folks are, are very concerned with exact reproducibility right now. And I don't necessarily think that's the right way to go. It reminds me of a lot of the HPC codes that that focused on bitwise reproducibility, and I think that ultimately that does not help <laughs> science. It, it focuses you on these specific wrong bits as opposed to getting the problem right for some reasonable definition of right. Okay. Yeah. So you mentioned the spec log file. Could I use this file to document reproducibility of my code? For example, could I just submit this file to the reproducibility appendix of a supercomputing article and things would be fine? Or would I have to add additional information that one other researcher could understand what I did there? I think it's reasonably understandable. It's it's a big JSON file with, with things like what OS, what architecture what build options did you build with? Um, you do need spec to reproduce it. So I guess, you know, to some extent, I, I wouldn't just paste it into my reproducibility appendix in my paper. Um, but I, I might attach it and say, hey, this is this is a file that you could use to reproduce this with spec. Um, see it for all the details. Yeah, but spec being freely available, like it's not much a barrier. It's not, it's not proprietary software which with a price attached to it. Yeah, that's right. But how reliable is spec with down versioning? So if I produced a spec file two years ago and then I run it two years later with a newer version of spec, do I get the same results or do I get different results? Or can you say something about that? So in between that time and now, the package files may have changed. So it, you would need to run it with the same version of spec that you ran it with then. Um, and, and I think that's actually something that we really should put in the log file is what commit you are at in spec um, that we don't do yet. But in general, um, we do keep old versions around. So, um, you know, it's another question of the, the new package may have improvements. It may work in more places. It likely has the old versions in it and still builds them. So I think you have a reasonably good chance of reproducing the old thing, um, even if you don't use the exact same version of spec. Um, so that might be like an option that we put on um, the environment build. Use the old version of SPAC as well, but we have not done that yet. You mentioned earlier that SPAC supports all kind of uh, compilers already installed on your system. But is it possible to ship a package that depends on specific compiler behavior? Like, uh, I don't know if there's such a thing like something that would only compile properly with Clang. Uh, would it be possible to ship that with SPAC? Not, not at the moment. Um, you, you can actually declare conflicts on all the other compilers if you want to do that, but, but it's somewhat tedious. We try to get things to, you know, say that to be open, like I said, so that you could experiment with a new compiler if you wanted to. So, I mean, we could add that syntax um, and, and have it so that something requires a particular compiler, but again, like I'd, I'd like it to be open. One of the things that we are moving towards is for packages to more clearly be able to specify their requirements on compilers. And, and so what I mean by that is, right now I don't know of any package manager that lets you say, hey, this, this package needs C++ 17, right? Or this package needs Fortran 95, or this package needs OpenMP 4.5. At the moment, compilers in SPAC are, they're, they're not quite proper dependencies because we didn't, Uh, in, you know, at least in the first versions, model all the complexities there, like the runtime libraries and the potential dependencies on other compilers. Like I think you might know that Intel compilers depend on GCC for their lib standard C++. So what, what we're going to do is actually model all those relationships and have it so the packages can say, I need you know, open, OpenMP 4.5 and C++ 17. And then we would check things like, does this DAG use the consistent lib standard C++ version Is it using the right version of the compiler that supports that and so on? Um, and we already do things kind of like that in that, you know, for the specific target stuff that I mentioned, 
we know which compiler versions support which targets and what flags are necessary. And so you know, this is kind of an extension of that idea, but more complicated because we're modeling you know, the, what's underneath the compiler. Okay. Yeah, when you're talking about like C++ 17 or Fortran 95 or like version of feature sets, like you don't have a way to specify we need a compiler that supports this feature set exactly. Yeah, exactly. And and we have virtual dependencies in spec that let you specify that for things like MPI because it's a proper library, right? Like you can say this package depends on MPI 2 and we'll match you with uh, the appropriate um, MPI implementation. We would just be doing the same sort of thing for compilers. Yeah. Uh, is there a test performed to validate that the software was properly installed? There are tests in some of the packages. So you can say install dash run tests, um, and then the test will be run immediately after install. But that's not quite as flexible as we'd like it to be. So we actually have a project right now where package contributors can add test methods to their packages that would run on the installation afterwards. So you can install a whole environment and then just say spec test, and the test would be run on those things. That's not in the mainline yet. There's still only the install tests right now, um, but we're working on it. Okay. Nice. From our discussion, it seems that the main audience are more likely system administrators to use spec. Do you know if some people use spec to build their own code on their local machine? Yeah, we have people who use spec uh, to, to version their entire environment on like their, their Mac or their Linux uh, laptop. Um, so like there are students at like UIUC and other places who, who use spec to build just their regular environment. Um, it's really targeted you know, at the whole spectrum. Um, you know, scientists who just want to run codes developers who want to work on codes. We recently added some developer features for that. And then also system administrators. So I think you, know, you could think of SPAC as like the infrastructure to support all those use cases. There's a lot of flexibility in the, the dependency model and in the build system. And so we have you know particular um, tools in SPAC that are targeted at those different audiences. So like for administrators, we have these SPAC stacks, which are basically the combinatorial environments that I mentioned Uh, where you can say, build these packages with all these MPIs, all these compilers, and so on, and generate the modules for them. And then for regular users or, or developers, we have environments. So you can set up an environment a lot like a virtual end for a Conda environment, just for the one thing that you want to run, and work within that environment too. I think, I think for developers, one of the features that, that they like about SPAC is it, it's flexible about versions and configurations. Right. Developers often want to run something, you know, with very specific versions of dependencies and very specific build options. And we let you do that to a degree that I don't think any other package manager actually does. If you look at like Linux Brew or Homebrew or something like that, they tend to support only the latest version of a package and they upgrade underneath you. And so there's it's sort of a trade off with with reproducibility. Right. They try to remain current and they try to simplify their maintenance burden by only supporting the latest version. So since we interviewed Kenneth Hoster in episode 12 about EasyBuild, we would like to get your advice about the difference between EasyBuild and SPAC. Sure. Um, so I think the main difference between EasyBuild and SPAC is that SPAC's a lot more flexible. If you look at EasyBuild, the model is that you have you know, a, a fixed set of tool chains that are, that are kind of curated, and um, you write these things called easy configs that are essentially, you know, all of the details for how to build particular packages, right? Um, and then they have, I guess, easy blocks, which are sort of the build logic behind them. If you think about SPAC, there are, there are like two key components to it. There are the specs that you write on the command line. Like I might say SPAC install hyper at some version with this option. And so that's kind of a language that you use on the command line to say what you want. Um, and the packages themselves are these Python classes that are written in a templated way, as opposed to a very fixed way for a particular configuration. And so if I change what I say on the command line, the spec package will build it for me without any changes. Um, with easy build, they have something like, I don't know, 10,000, 14,000 easy config files for all the different configurations that they've tried at one time or another. Um, and I think that, that adds up to be a pretty big maintenance burden in the end. Whereas in spec, you know, we only have the 4,000 package.py files, they're templated and you can build them lots of different ways. And people end up wanting to do that when they run on like a new architecture or something. You don't have to wait for the stack to move there. You can just try it out. Okay. Are you aware if any of the top 500 supercomputers is using EasyBuild? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. So I know that Ulick uses EasyBuild a lot and they have had top 500 supercomputers for a long time. I don't know what their current system is. Other ones that use EasyBuild. Let's see. NCSA was using EasyBuild to some extent for a while, um, and I I can't think of any others off the top of my head. I'm, I'm sure I'm missing something. Okay. So how complicated would it be to transist from EasyBuild to spec? 
would I have to write all my files new or can I convert them easily or can I reuse parts of some? Um, there's no automatic conversion. Was, actually, Kenneth and I talked in the early days of SPAC about potentially combining the tools. And, and what we found was that the, the models are very, very different underneath. Like what, what EasyBuild is trying to do is very different from what SPAC is trying to do. Uh, and so I, I wouldn't say that you could directly translate things, but I, I suspect that you would find a lot of the packages that you want to build you know, in SPAC already. So if it was in EasyBuild, you could just write you know, the package name in your, in your SPAC.yaml and have it installed. Um, so I think a lot of the work is already done. You would have to rewrite your configuration for how you want your stack to be set up. Okay. Are you aware of any alternatives next to EasyBuild? In the HPC space? Specifically, yes. I mean, I think the big one that comes up is is Conda, um, but I wouldn't call it an HPC package manager in the sense that it's it's binary only, so you can't build for a particular machine, and you know it, it often doesn't have the optimized versions of the libraries that you want. So so there's that, um, and things like interfacing with the system MPI are hard. Uh, but I think that's the closest thing that's that's in the same space. Like Conda targets scientific computing at sort of the workstation level. Um, Easy Build and SPAC are targeting HPC, um, and, and SPAC is targeting, you know, to some extent, developers and users a little more than Easy Build might be, which is more targeted at administrators. Okay, so can I use Easy Build and SPAC together on the same machine? And for example, there's one package one of my users needs, and it's not available in SPAC. So could I install Easy Build and compile this one specific package with Easy Build and all my other packages with SPAC, or would they interfere with with each other? You should be able to do that. Um, I, I know that sites have done that. Some folks at Pfizer were um, were using both at, uh, for a little while. And uh, I think you would have to try to get the modules to play nice with each other. So SPAC has configurable modules, so does EasyBuild. You would have to make sure that they were using something that actually, you know, synced up between the two uh, tools. But beyond that, yeah, there's no reason that you shouldn't be able to install them both alongside each other. I think that that's a key difference between these tools and a lot of mainstream package managers is that with, you know, SPAC, we are path everything. And, and so what that means is that we embed the location of the dependencies within the executables that we build and the libraries. So when you go to run a SPAC binary, it knows where to find the things it needs. You don't have to set LD library path or anything like that. So it's isolated from other things on the system. Um, and EasyBuild can build that way too. Um, they added that. Um, but, but essentially, they, they both allow you to install many, many versions of the same software. So they're sort of fundamentally isolated. There's no conflict like you would get if you tried to put both of these things in APT. Yeah, it is built simply avoid version conflicts and you isolate each install in its own bubble in a way that like with our links to okay i need that version of mpi which was built for that package and, and instead of having like rel relative links or links that can be broken by installing another package with a general package manager such as apt yeah that's that's an interesting approach i mean nix does the same thing underneath <laughs> yeah yeah nix as well yeah And uh, there is also, I think, was it Gobo Linux that tried, or they, they had something strange? Would they wanted to change the hierarchical file system structure? Uh, I don't remember what they were doing, but uh, it was something strange as well. It sounds interesting. Um, yeah. <laughs> so we, we you talked about uh, in the past we had a collaboration, or at least attempt to collaborate with EasyBuild. When did the project start? Was like was it collaboration at the beginning of SPAC, or was it after a few years of the project started, or what? What is the timeline of the project? So we started writing SPAC, or I started writing SPAC at Livermore in 2013. Uh, I actually joined the EasyBuild IRC channel and asked them, you know, how would I do this with EasyBuild? How would I get it to you know install things as a one-off on the with these commands and so on. Um, and they didn't seem too interested in doing that. So I, I went off and wrote SPAC. I think it really started taking off in you know, 2015, 2016. We, we presented a paper on SPAC at Supercomputing 2015. And, and then we, we got some broad visibility from that. Uh, and people started contributing. So, I mean, now we have you know, over 550 contributors to the, to the project. Um, in over 4,000 packages, it's it's grown quite a bit. Um, I think at that time I had like maybe 300 packages in the system total. So it's it's pretty awesome that you know from the community contributions we've been able to um, grow so much. And I think Livermore has only contributed you know something less than 10% of the total packages. So we we get out a lot more than we we put in to some extent. 
Okay, so there's a lot of contributors that joined the project since then. Uh, mm -hmm. Do they mostly con contribute by submitting package or maintaining package, or do they also contribute to the the core of SPAC itself? Uh, I'd say both. So, I mean, obviously the vast majority of contributions are little package contributions, like new versions and things like that. Uh, but people do contribute major features to SPAC. So, for example, the binary packaging that you were asking about was contributed by Fermilab um, and CERN. And, and they basically built the relocatable binary support in SPAC because they liked the tool and they wanted to use it for things like Root, their, uh, their big statistical analysis tool. APFL contributed a lot to SPAC, although we actually ended up... Uh, We hired that guy, um, so Massimiliano Colpo now works <laughs> on the core team uh, for SPAC. Uh, he works for Scilabs, but he contributes to, to SPAC um, under uh, subcontract now. Um, and so, you know, we, we do get a lot of external contributions in, in the core as well as the packages. Okay. How many core developers do you have in the SPAC project? It's, it's hard to say. Um, I mean, if you're talking just at Livermore, um, I think, there. let's see, there's... Uh, me, Tammy, Greg, Peter, uh, and Massimiliano would, would count now. So, you know, that's like five people, different percentages of them. Outside of here, you, CERN and, and other sites have people who contribute to SPAC as part of their job. So, you know, we consider them to be core developers as well. Um, so it's there, there's a very sort of broad continuum of, of types of contributors to core. But, you know, at least four or five developers. Okay. So how is the community organized? Do you have weekly calls or do you have weekly discussions on social media or how does this work? So the community is organized mostly through GitHub, although Slack has become a really large forum for people these days. Um, we have, like, I think, like 570 people in the Slack instance now, which is pretty crazy. I didn't expect it to grow that much. Um, and, and so a lot of sort of routine help and things like that for users happens in Slack. Uh, we don't really have a formal governance board. Uh, I would say that we at, at Livermore are, are sort of the core team. We make the decisions. Um, ultimately, that boils down to me. So I guess I'm kind of the BDFL of SPAC. But we do try to listen to the community. So like I said, for, for things like the collaboration with um, Fermilab and CERN, we, we've always been very interested in getting more contributors to the project. And so if there are sites like that, That, that are proposing a really cool feature, um, we will prioritize working with them because we, we think that we get a lot out of that when, when we get more people building significant features in the tool. I'd, I'd say for you know, the, the core governance of the project, it, it flows mostly from you know, ASK and ECP milestones. So ASK is the Advanced Simulation Computing uh, Program here at Livermore, and ECP is, is obviously the Exascale Computing Project. We have a core set of milestones that we work on there, but but the core developers work on those as well as community support. So I, I think it's fairly fluid. I wouldn't say that we've sat down and formalized um, a system of government for SPAC. Okay, so two small follow-up questions. So who decides which package are added to the main repo if you don't have a governance board? For example, one person wants to get his pull request into the master repo, but a lot of people are against. So who finally decides what is added to the main repo? We So because we are fairly, I guess I would say, SPAC has a lot of room for doing things different ways. Um, by, by design, um, it's templated. So I, we don't really see gigantic fights over different ways to do things in, in packages. So I, I haven't seen a situation where essentially, you know, there's, there's just been, you know, a knockdown drag out fight on, on GitHub like that. So, you know, thankfully we haven't had to deal with that, but, you know, ultimately the, the core maintainers decide. So, um, one of the people who's been sort of phenomenally productive in the package ecosystem is, is Adam Stewart. Um, and he used to be at Argonne, but now he's a uh, grad student at UIUC, but he still spends a lot of time on the project. I end up delegating a lot of the package decisions to Adam. And, and he has done a really good job of curating sort of what goes in the main line, how things should be written and, and what the conventions are. So I would say, you know, he and, and other folks like Massimiliano and, and Peter here at Livermore, Peter Scheibel, they, they do a really good job of monitoring the pull requests coming in and, and making decisions on them. And we, we generally try to find consensus before we merge anything. Um, and so far, that hasn't been so hard. Under which license is SPAC released? Any reason for that choice of license also? Um, so SPAC is dual licensed under uh, MIT or Apache. You, as a user, you can choose either one. 
And um, we actually relicensed in 2018 from, from LGPL um, because we wanted to be more permissive. And, and essentially we did that because we found that users were you know, experiencing obstacles at their organization to using SPAC if it was under LGPL. So certain companies will, um, they're, they're allergic to anything GPL. Um, they won't consider using the tool. And, you know, it, we didn't find the GPL to be particularly effective for, you know, forcing people to contribute back. We thought we would get a lot more out of being more permissive and allowing SPAC to be used anywhere. So we, we went with MIT or Apache sort of based on the Rust ecosystem. And, and their motivation for doing that is because it's kind of the most permissive you can be. You're giving a copyright license and a, a patent license on, on the code. So you have protections for all the relevant types of IP. And we did two licenses because Apache by itself is not compatible with um, GPL. So we wanted SPAC to be usable within GPL projects. And so we dual license with MIT for the same reason that the Rust folks did. They wanted to be usable anywhere. Okay. And for packages themselves, because the the spec license, the, the license for spec may not be the same than for packages. Which license do you allow for the packages? Um, we require them all to be Apache or MIT. We haven't had anyone, you know, demand that their their packages be specifically GPL or whatever. Are you are you asking about the package recipes or the packages themselves? Oh, um, could be both actually. Yeah, uh, thinking about that, maybe the package recipe. They could uh, be a different license than the package themselves, but I was initially was talking about the the license, the, the package themselves. Oh, so the, uh, we don't have any restrictions at the moment on what licenses are allowed for the packages. There are some packages that will, you know, install proprietary things, and you have to sort of write into the package, you know, details about like the license server and things. Um, a lot of HPC sites use software like that, so you know, we allow that. Um, it's probably more cumbersome than it needs to be because of all the licensing stuff that you have to do. I, I think by and large, most things in SPAC are some sort of free software license. And, and we don't, I guess we don't really check that. So um, yeah, the, the recipes themselves are MIT or Apache. Okay. Now I would like to switch to a slightly lighter topic. What is your vision about FLOSS and its importance for the openness of science? So I think SPAC itself is sort of a testament to that. Um, you know, we it, it filled a gap that that was it, that was there for HPC centers. I think software provisioning in general um, at HPC centers has been sort of done in a siloed way for a very long time. Every center believes their machine to be unique and special, and they would provision the software for their machine and duplicate the work that other sites did for their machines. And so SPAC actually. You know, it's flexible enough to store the configurations for all the different machines that we use in DOE. And so it's actually resulted in a whole lot of collaboration across sites. So I, I guess I would say, you know, I my vision for open source is really that it's it's a great way to build common infrastructure um, across organizations that maybe otherwise wouldn't, wouldn't be able to collaborate on something like this. It, it's been phenomenal for getting contributions to SPAC. Okay. Do you think that using Floss can have negative impacts on science? Um, I, I can't think of any negative impacts off the top of my head. I, I think that obviously some things should not be open source. <laughs> so for example, like, you know, we do a lot of national security work at Livermore and we would not open source those things. I think doing that would have negative impacts on like the world, but I don't think that open source fundamentally has negative impacts on science. Uh, I think people... There, there's nervousness around things like making your the software for your paper uh, open too soon before you publish it. But I, I think ultimately open source helps with transparency and with uh, you know making science more reproducible, which is which is key to doing science right. Okay, we're almost done with the interview, and we will proceed with some of our classic quick questions. Uh, in recent year, what do you think was the most notable scientific discovery? Uh, the coolest thing I can remember from recent times was uh, the picture of the black hole. Okay. What is your favorite text processing tool? I use Emacs, although I don't know that I have a favorite. I've tried to switch to Vim unsuccessfully several times just because I like the lightweightness of, of Vim. Okay. Is there a topic in science about which you recently changed your mind about? Um, not that I can think of recently. Let me think a little harder on that. Maybe I should have read these more carefully. <laughs> <laughs> That's a tricky one. 
Well, I mean, there there's tons of minor things that I've changed my mind about. I don't know that there was there is a just a giant topic in science that I've that I've recently changed my mind about. Um, yeah, so I guess I'll leave it at that. <laughs> okay. Uh, is there anything else we forgot to ask you about that we should have known to ask you about, or anything else you would like to share with us? Uh, nope, I think that's it. Okay. Thank you, Todd, for your time and this interview. If any of our listeners wants to reach you, how would you like them to contact you? Um, they can feel free to email me at tgamblin at lnl.gov, or they can hit me up on Twitter. I'm at tgamblin. Um, or they can join SPAC Slack. Uh, there's a pink button on the SPAC repo on GitHub, uh, and you can join. You can get an automatic invitation email and, and just show up and, and start talking. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thanks a lot. This will be all for today's episode of the Frost for Science podcast. I hope you enjoyed that interview. You can reach me on Twitter at DLPK. And you can reach me at underscore Debras or both of us at Flush for Science. Also, we are on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Spotify, and YouTube. You can help us by recommending our shows to your friend and colleagues. Our website is located at flossforscience.com, where you can find all of our contact information and a link to our GitHub page where you can submit subject ideas for future episodes. You can also listen to our previous episodes or find our RSS feed to get all of our interviews delivered directly to your favorite podcast player. Our current schedule is to release an episode on the first Wednesday of every month, but to the current crisis, we may have some delays. We hope you enjoyed the show and that we will see you all in our next episode. Stay safe and well. Bye. Bye.